Hey guys, and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you for joining us for what is now episode number 130. And we're back finally with another Q&A, which we're going to jump straight into right now. Excellent. So kicking off this podcast with this question, it says, what is the difference between poly, mono, and saturated fats? Great. So this is a good question. And essentially, those terms are really just categorizing different types of fatty acids. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also something that a lot of people don't realize is the term fatty acid. And it's essentially a term given to different types of dietary fat. Yeah, that actually might come to some people's surprise because when you read a nutrition label on the back of some food packet, it literally just labels the protein, the fat, and the carbohydrate content. Mm. Maybe if they want to get a little bit fancy, they will put saturated fat under the types of fat Mm. or under the carbohydrate content. They might tell you what is sugar or not. Mm. But believe it or not, for all of our macronutrients, there's definitely subcategories to those. Yeah. Just like all carbohydrates are essentially sugars or some type of sugar, Mm -hmm. all proteins are amino acids, all fats are comprised of fatty acids. Yeah, but people have a hard enough time and understanding reading nutrient information panels already, right? So Mm. (laughs) don't want to complicate it even more. So essentially we can break down the categorization and obviously each type of fat has certain qualities which gives it meaning. So... We'll start at saturated fat and proceed on to monounsaturated and then polyunsaturated. Excellent. So a saturated fat, basically no matter what type of fat it is, it's always going to have a carbon backbone. But a saturated fat essentially means that it is saturated with hydrogen molecules. And a saturated fat, it only has single bonds and it's saturated with hydrogen molecules. Mm. And it is solid at room temperature. That's one of the main ways that you can actually recognize whether or not a type of fat on a food is saturated or unsaturated. Because if you put it out on the kitchen counter, it's going to be solid. So for example, a block of butter or some coconut oil, or if you took a steak out of the fridge and it's got that big rim of fat Mm. on the outside, that's saturated. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense when you put it like that. And I think saturated fat has or still is correlated with a lot of people thinking unhealthy foods. Mm-hmm. So junk food, saturated fat, animal products, saturated fat. And there is a little bit of truth to that. Like mm-hmm. there's a grain of truth. And there was this big study that was, I can't remember exactly when it was done, but it essentially linked saturated fat with like high blood pressure, cancer, mm-hmm. uh, atherosclerosis clogging of the arteries, all that sort of stuff. And that's basically been, it hasn't been dispelled as a myth, but the extent of saturated fats influence on things like heart disease, uh, we believe, we know now that it's not as significant as what we thought Mm -hmm. before. So, And we always have to remember that the devil's in the dose. If you're going to have too much of anything in the context of a dietary pattern, to the point where it excludes something else, then you're probably gonna run into a few issues. And Mm. essentially for saturated fat, the recommendations are that from your total daily energy intake, no more than 10% of your total daily calories come from saturated fat. So if you were consuming 2000 calories a day, 
this would be 200 calories worth of saturated fat. Divide that by nine. What's that like? 22.2. 22.2. Jack got his calculator out. <laughs> no, <laughs> so, I didn't. <laughs> anyway, no more than 10%. That's a rough guideline. And again, that's just to ensure that you that's can get your- That's a decent amount of fat as well. 22 grams of fat? Yeah. For that's... like to just be saturated. Like yeah. That's a decent amount. Yeah, if you're having a, a nice steak at the steakhouse, you know, with some butter on it, you could probably meet that quite <laughs> quite easily, to be honest. Depends but... how lean the steak is. <laughs> That's true. Or why don't you just order some kangaroo, eh? Mm, kangaroo steaks. Anyway, guys, so that's your saturated fat. And it's quite interesting, though, with coconut oil, because coconut oil is obviously a saturated fat. But I always know that it's getting really hot here in Australia when my coconut oil on the shelf is liquid because mm. I'm like, hey, this room ain't room temperature anymore. It's like 35 degrees in here and it's actually melting my coconut oil. So. Yeah. Cool. So let's move on to monounsaturated and we're saturated and monounsaturated, like they share some commonality in the sense that they both are not essential fatty acids. Mm -hmm. So essential, essential essentially <laughs> means that the body cannot produce a adequate quantity or it can't produce any of it in general. So mm -hmm. that's why we have essential amino acids, amino acids where the body either can't produce or they can't produce enough mm -hmm. of. And mono and saturated fat, they're not essential, uh, but essentially mono unsaturated means that it, it contains one double bond to hydrogen mm -hmm. compared to saturated, which is all single bonds. Yeah, and that would then make it a little bit more fluid. So it's mm. fluid at room temperature. So examples of monounsaturated fats would be something like your extra virgin olive oil. Mm. Which I think is the fatty acid main component there is oleic acid, mm -hmm. I believe. Yeah. Uh, which is neat. And so this is kind of the one that often gets termed, okay, monounsaturated. This is where the bulk of your dietary fat should come from. It's, mm -hmm. it's the healthy fat. It's where things like nuts and seeds and olive oil and... Avocado. Avocado. Those are all mainly monounsaturated forms of, of fat. Mm -hmm. So we want to... That should definitely form the bulk of your fat intake. Yeah. And there's just a lot of literature linking these different types of fatty acids, particularly to cardiovascular health. So... Generally, someone consuming a diet that is proportionally higher in mono and polyunsaturated fats, which we'll get to soon, generally has better health outcomes and better cardiovascular health and better overall health mm. compared to if they were consuming a high amount of saturated fats. And yeah. definitely just being fluid at room temperature, I truly believe that the actual structure of the fatty acid itself does help obviously mm. in terms of metabolism. It, it would make more sense that if like coconut oil is solid, mm. it would clog the arteries faster because <laughs> it's solid, right? Something along <laughs> those lines. <laughs> I guess if you want to think about it like that, but pretty sure our, our biochemistry teacher would be just be shaking his head. Mm. Uh, but I think that also another key point to that is we have to think about the types of foods that these fatty acids are coming from. So for example, if you're consuming avocado and you're consuming olive oil and you're consuming nuts and seeds all of the trace micronutrients that come with these foods alongside those fats those would be playing in with your health status as well yeah totally and it's another big misconception i often hear and i'm sure you hear as well that people like fat is bad and mm. the the more fat you eat the worse it is like it's some sort of toxin or it's or it's bad for the body but the the dose of or the amount of dietary fat you consume is not correlated with 
the health outcome. Mm. It's more so the quality of the fat that you consume and also your total energy intake, your body fat, your mm-hmm. exercise, your sleep, all those other lifestyle factors. So, And just your dietary pattern as a whole. Mm. Again, like too much of anything... One, you're probably going to land yourself in a large calorie surplus, which <laughs> like just having excessive amounts of body fat on you per se, mm. just from having extra calories, not necessarily just because you had additional dietary fat. If you get what I mean, you're going to run into some issues there. But again, if you have too much of something in a diet, it's going to have to replace something else that would also provide other benefits. Mm, cool. Well, let's move on to polyunsaturated fat. So polyunsaturated fat, unlike monounsaturated fat, because monounsaturated, mono meaning one, which means it has that one double bond, poly means multiple. So you can have anywhere between like two to six double bonds in a fatty acid chain. And polyunsaturated fats, these are the ones that are considered essential. Mm. And the two main polyunsaturated fats are what we call omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids. So... These are going to have anywhere between two to six bonds in that fatty acid chain. And also they are also going to be fluid at room temperature as well. Mm. So, and I'm pretty sure the Omega, like the actual three versus six, that's where it is double bonded Mm. by to the end of the chain, not the start of the chain. Mm -hmm. I remember that from chemistry. Yeah. That must've been like a (laughs) multiple choice question, right? (laughs) Yeah, probably something I memorized and so as Sierra said, these are the essential types of fatty acids, and these are the ones we often correlate with. Okay, that's why you need to take fish oils because those contain omega threes. And like essentially, they're essential. <laughs> <laughs> to quote Jack, and essentially the ratio of omega three to omega six it should be around one to six, but in fact at the moment due to people's current dietary patterns it's more so one to 20 yeah which is not not good it's way out of scale hey guys just a reminder that we offer coaching services which you can find on our website by searching the bodybuilding dietitians on google or via the show notes below we coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal Yeah. So, and the reason for that is that obviously we want to be promoting more of an anti-inflammatory diet and an anti-inflammatory diet is going to include more fruits and vegetables and also these different types of fatty acids, which include more mono and polyunsaturated fats. However, a lot of the food that's consumed right now in the Western culture is highly processed and it does contain a lot of these omega-6 polyunsaturated fats. So these would be coming from highly processed items like let's say some potato chips or fast food, particularly because a lot of fast food is deep fried in vegetable oils, which have generally pretty high omega-6 to omega-3 ratios, unfortunately. So these more processed items and they're just promoting more inflammation in the diet. So there, it is out of balance there, but Essentially, essentially, I love using that word when we're talking about essential nutrients, (laughs) omega-3 sources of fat, these are really going to come from your fatty fish because fatty fish in their natural diet will be consuming plenty of algae. And by eating a diet full of algae, they are going to have omega-3 fatty acids. So this is your things like uh, wild-caught salmon, and bear mundi and mackerel and even some fatty tuna whatever sort of fatty fish that you would be consuming 
But you can also get omega-3 fatty acids through plants as well. So things like chia seeds and walnuts and hemp seeds. However, although these are omega-3 fatty acids, they are in a different form. So they're in the ALA form rather than uh, DHA or EPA. And unfortunately, just the conversion rate of ALA to DHA or EPA isn't all that great in the body. So uh, it's recommended that if you aren't consuming fatty sources of fish from actual like wild caught sources, because we've touched on in previous podcasts before that if you are consuming a diet that's high in farmed fish, it's questionable whether or not it actually has a good ratio of omega-3 to omega-6. And they've even done some studies where because of the diets they're feeding these fish, like they're feeding the fish corn, they actually end up with having higher levels of omega-6 than omega-3. Mm. So there's a, just a big red question mark on that one. Yeah. So You're better off just eating, not eating fish at the moment if it's farmed or mm. just eating it for taste. Yeah. And even as you and I, that's something that we've definitely changed our stance on mm. over the years because we generally do always take a food first approach, but we're, we're really under the impression now where it's like, for omega-3 fatty acids, man, like probably just to cover your bases, you should be consuming an algae oil supplement or a high quality fish oil supplement. Mm, yeah. it Unless you go to the lake and catch it yourself mm-hmm. or you buy exclusively fresh fish mm-hmm. from the market or something, it's, uh, it's likely that it will be farmed. Oh, and this actually reminds me really interesting. So we had this nutrition lecture back in uni called Michael Leverett and In one of our very first nutrition lectures, Jack, I remember him talking about omega-3s and polyunsaturated fats in fish. And he raised the question of, have any of you guys ever thought why a farm animal, for example, a cow or a pig, has a higher ratio of saturated fat compared to an animal like a fish, which has a higher ratio of polyunsaturated fat? Everyone's like, hmm, right? Because we're like all 17-year-olds in one of our very first ever nutrition courses at uni. But he made the point that one, polyunsaturated fats, they need to be liquid at room temperature. But think about a fish, like a fish in the Arctic or a fish just out in the ocean in general. It's pretty cold, right? It's colder Mm. than what it is out if you're on a a farm out in the sun. (laughs) So he raised the point that fish have a higher ratio of polyunsaturated fats because they need to be fluid in nature. They can't be saturated and they can't be really rigid while they're trying to swim through the water. Makes sense. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting. Mm. Yeah, so there you go. That's why your fish has more... But we know that fish get there polyunsaturated fats through their diet though yeah so i know but what i'm trying to say is that perhaps from an evolutionary standpoint mm. that's why perhaps algae has more omega-3s because they need the sea creatures to be able to swim and move through the cold water very cool yes it's very yeah. interesting all these things are interlinked my friends anyway but that's the <laughs> difference between saturated monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fatty acids Okay, uh, so right now we're going to move on to another nutrition question. So this one says, even if casein is recommended at night, does it matter what time of the day that you have it? No. No? No. Should we expand on why that's a no? (laughs) Yes. So I think it's purely just a marketing sort of thing Mm -hmm. where casein, yeah, it's that slow release thing. Have it at night, it'll 
give you MPS throughout the whole night. Mm-hmm. You'll get bigger as you as you sleep, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Spike your growth hormone while you're at it. <laughs> and it's essentially just like having yogurt. Like yogurt, the main main source of protein or main type of protein in yogurt is casein. And it's like, should you only have yogurt at night? Mm. No, you can have yogurt whenever you want. Yeah. And I think there's, I guess the only argument potentially for when you should have or should not have casein is that it is slightly slower digesting, but in the scheme of things, I wouldn't say that particularly matters either. Yeah. Like it's, we're, to, we're talking about very small details mm-hmm. here. And I understand that there's definitely merit in the question because we even learned about this in our very first years of sports nutrition. You know, they'd put up that graph and they'd say, so we did this study where we had some fasted subjects and we gave some of them a casein protein shake and some of them a whey protein shake. And then they measured MPS over time Mm. and digestion over time. And they found that these individuals, they were able to digest whey protein faster than they were able to digest casein protein Mm. very initially. So they were talking about like in the first anywhere probably between 30 minutes to four hours sort of thing. But after that, it all balanced out. Yeah. And again, that is a study where they're testing these very short-term acute changes on fasted individuals. But we have to think about this again in the context of an entire dietary pattern. And sure, whey might be faster digesting than casein. By the way... Whey is way faster digesting. Yeah, it is by quite a few hours. But again, we have to think about this. Okay, so guys, where did whey and casein even come from? If you were to drink a glass of milk, yes, that milk has protein in it, but it has two main proteins in it. It has whey protein and it has casein protein. But out of all the protein in that milk, around 80% is actually casein protein and only around 20% is actually whey. Do you remember that nursery rhyme from when we were kids? It was like called Little Miss Muffet. Sort of. <laughs> it was like Little Miss Muffet sat on her tuffet eating her curds and whey. <laughs> I'm more kind of confused by what a tuffet is. Yeah, I'm not sure what a tuffet is, but I know that our university degrees taught us what curds and whey mean. It, tuffet sounds like <laughs> one of those words where they're like, hmm, we can't really think of anything to rhyme here. Let's just put tuffet in. It sounds about right. Leave a comment in the show notes below. What does tuffet mean, guys? Or message us on the DMs on the TBDs. We'll have to Google that one afterwards. It sounds like a really comfy little pillow. A little tuffet. Sounds nice. Anyway, curds and whey. Curds refers to the casein curds because casein it curdles and it coagulates Mm. and then whey away with the whey so like if you're making cheese or cottage cheese would be a good example so when they're actually making cottage cheese that's predominantly just casein protein Mm. because it's it's the curds from the milk protein and then they skim the rest of the whey away and the fat and the fat too yeah but ooh, interestingly so Casein actually binds to the calcium molecule. So if you're actually consuming casein protein powder, casein is actually a phenomenal source of calcium. So like our casein that we buy from VPA Australia, it doesn't even have added calcium to it. It's like 530 milligrams per Mm. 30 gram scoop. Mm. That's almost two glasses of milk. That's half your daily calcium intake. Yeah, it's amazing, man. Get amongst it. Mm. I think something we can finish on as well for this question is that I think a lot of people don't realize that uh, casein is not soluble, whereas mm. whey is soluble. 
So that's why when you create a, I don't know how many people have casein shakes, but when you try and mix it with water, it doesn't really mix mm. that well. Whereas, that's why you mix it with a little bit of water and a little spoon and it's like a casein pudding. Yes. <laughs> I think many companies have used that exact thing, haven't they? <laughs> casein custards. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and then the way it's all like watery. Yeah, it's very soluble. Yeah. Mm. Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular informative content on both our Instagram and YouTube channel. So make sure to go over to those platforms and search The Bodybuilding Dietitians. See you there. But anyway guys, to answer the question, essentially, no, you don't only have to reserve your casein for at nighttime because it's going to be a slow release protein and you don't only have to consume whey protein after a workout because it's a fast digesting protein. Mm. Again, Especially I, if you're only training once a day. Yeah, and I also think it stems as well from when people initially thought there was that anabolic window following a workout. You know, mm. you do your last rep on a bicep curl, and then you're like, okay, I've only got 30 minutes in order to spike my MPS and get a protein shake in me. Otherwise, that workout was a complete waste of time. Turns out that it's not so much a 30 minute anabolic window. It's more of like a four to six hour barn door. So you've yeah. got a good amount of time. And also in these studies, it shows that, yeah, whey, it's on a fasted stomach. It's digested within like 30 minutes. Casein probably takes anywhere between like two to four hours. But considering that your pre and your post-workout meal, your peri-workout meals should be within four to six hours of one another, man, you tick that box. You know, you could have some yogurt, some milk, some casein, whatever you like, pre or post-workout. You're still going to be recovering over time, stimulating muscle protein synthesis over time. You have to choose one or the other though. Like ultimately you would choose whey. Like no, I choose I, I choose casein. No, if if taste wasn't a factor and like enjoyability or and nice cream texture. <laughs> yeah, like if all of that was out the window, then like if you had to choose which one was more optimal in terms of muscle protein synthesis following a workout, you probably would you'd have you would choose whey. No, I would argue not. Only if you were consuming it in isolation. Because everything else that you'd consume with it in that meal, like let's say you made a protein cake with some whey protein. Whether or not you're even consuming wholemeal flour or white flour, you'd have a banana there as well. You'd have some peanut butter. All of these other macronutrients and foods, we know that would slow down the digestion too. It's not like the whey just gets away from all the other... Sorry, pardon these whey puns. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not like it just gets digested and then everything else is left in the stomach. Like that would, all slows it down. I would say it, it would still be faster than the casein, but But anyway. in the grand scheme of things, would it matter? No. <laughs> <laughs> having a bit of argument over protein powders here <laughs> cool well let's move on to the next question okay so this next question it's essentially saying that this girl she said that she's a foodie and she likes to reserve a lot of her calories for quote-unquote junk foods and more highly processed foods but she's wondering if she were to replace these more highly processed foods with more nutritious foods so for example replacing some potato chips for some broccoli, would she have a better body composition? Mm. It's a very interesting question because I feel like this is where a lot of disordered eating originates from. Yeah. And it's where disordered eating for me originated from as well. When I first started realizing that you could like track calories, I was umming and ahhing every single day about, oh, what if I could just 
eat all of this stuff and just as long as it hit my macros i'll be fine i remember mm. like doing multiple deep dives on like bodybuilding.com and forums trying to find the answer to this question and ultimately i think talking about body composition in relation to this is kind of missing the forest for the trees because mm. your nutrition and your health should be kind of more of a priority first to body composition mm -hmm. at least in my opinion so you should have that foundation of the five food groups unless you have allergies and tolerances or certain dislikes or uh, ethics so like veganism or vegetarian but you should be hitting those fundamentals so fruit and veg whole grains dairy calcium all that sort of stuff and what if you can fit other stuff on top of that then no i don't think it's going to be changing mm. your body composition whatsoever but if you are kind of ignoring those food groups and literally just having processed food and not really caring too much about the food group discrimination, then yeah, I would say it would affect your body composition due to a number of reasons. Because body composition isn't just like how you look, like how much muscle versus how much fat you have. It's also about what about your skin quality? Mm -hmm. What about inflammation? Like pro-inflammatory foods are going to make you look vastly different than anti-inflammatory foods. Yeah. And that not point. just the look, but what's going on on the inside. Mm. So you put it there really well. So focus on obviously being healthy and well-nourished first. And once you take a lot of those boxes, boy, having a positive body composition, it almost just comes secondary mm. to that. But Plus, we've got to remember that all the quote-unquote healthy foods, they're all really low calorie. Yeah. So it's very easy to fit them in as a bare minimum. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's also where it stems from having like, 80% whole foods, 20% more discretionary items in a diet. But essentially, you do need to take those big boxes of ensuring that you are meeting all of your essential micronutrient requirements and that you are well nourished. And then if you have additional energy to spare, you don't necessarily get extra brownie points for eating extra micronutrients. We all know that. So that's where you could perhaps fit in a bit more of those discretionary items too. Mm. But Again, it's, it's that balancing act. If one, if you aren't well-nourished and you are running into micronutrient deficiencies, that's going to tie into your energy levels. So for example, if you're not meeting your iron requirements and you have low ferritin levels, you're probably going to find that you're pretty lethargic and you don't have much energy. If you don't have much energy and you're pretty lethargic, you're probably not going to be very inclined to get outside and go for walks, go to the gym, get a good workout in, you know, and all of that bleeds into not being able to positively change your body composition. And then also on the flip side too, if you're consuming a lot of processed items that are very pro-inflammatory, then that's not necessarily going to do a great deal for you in terms of muscular recovery. And also it's going to potentially influence your insulin sensitivity as well. And you might have a bit of an issue with obviously body fat distribution. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, like we're not demonizing those other food choices because no. you just have to take a look at my diet. Like I'm purposely having to lower my fiber intake. As a result of that, I'm having more <laughs> processed and refined foods. But believe it or not, the dietitian over here, some of his morning fruit has been replaced for Fruit Loops. <laughs> yes. And as a result of that, like I'm still prioritizing, still getting in like around 500 plus grams of veg per day, still getting in over 300 grams of fruit. The hardest part for me at the moment, like I'm still getting dairy, lean protein sources, dietary fat diversity. The hardest part for me has been whole grains because mm. it's hard to 
get all your fruit, get all your veg, all your dietary fat sources, and then still have room in terms of fiber to Mm -hmm. have carbohydrate diversity from whole grains. But if I was to give myself one dietary critique at the moment, it would be that, Mm -hmm. but I'm having to do it for a reason. And to be honest, most people don't run into that issue because they're just not consuming enough food in order to warrant those dietary changes. Yeah, exactly right. And I think that if someone is on a lower energy budget, that's when it's even more essential that they are consuming a larger majority of their food from wholesome, unprocessed sources, just so that they can meet those micronutrient requirements. But when your energy demands are really high and you've ticked all of those boxes, that's when you've got extra room to spare to fit in a few more processed items. But I think just psychologically as well, that really ties in with it too, because people often identify with a diet. And then if someone identifies with a certain dietary pattern, that kind of bleeds into how they identify as a person and also their lifestyle choices as well. So Mm. if someone identifies as someone who chooses to go to the fruit market and buy a bunch of fresh produce rather than getting Uber Eats every single night, then it's likely that they're also well, going to be... Uber Eats could come from the food market. <laughs> you could get that Uber Eats dude to show up to Sam Coco's. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I've never seen it. But anyway, uh, if you if you identify with that, then it's probably more likely that you're also going to identify as a person who gets out and goes for daily walks, who goes to the gym a few times a week. And obviously all of those additional factors and like the movement and the stimulus that you're providing your body with that's majorly going to dictate as well what your body composition looks like. Yes, entirely. Huge. Cool. Well, I think we should obviously finish with something that we learned this week, Mm -hmm. but we should just give the listeners a clue in in terms of our mindset regarding the podcast episodes. Mm -hmm. So we haven't been as frequent as we usually are in the last few weeks. We just had a lot going on with that seminar. And we apologize. Yeah. And... What we've kind of discussed a new format for this because we want to do these Q&As every week and we we love podcasting and it kind of take took us a bit of inconsistency to realize that we enjoy it so much. Mm-hmm. So we want to do the Q&As every week, but we just don't think the frequency with the road to 2023 is as necessary because the reality with the off season is that it's quite monotonous at times. <laughs> so we're probably going to do that every second week. Unless you guys want to hear updates every week of... Yes, crush my training again. <laughs> Macro is the same. Uh, so we'll probably do that every second week, do the Q&As every week. And we want to try and throw in a few more exciting episodes here and there. But I think particularly me, uh, out of us two, I'm very big on analytics. Mm-hmm. So if the analytics show a particular trend, then I'm going to go for that. And unfortunately, that last episode we did where we kind of just went haywire and discussed a lot of different questions about ourselves and about car engines and how they work i'm sorry you guys didn't like it but we had some fun yeah so even though that episode didn't perform the best like we'll we'll probably maybe throw in one of those occasionally Mm. just because it's fun yeah and let us know as well guys like do you want to hear from more than just jack and tiara like let us know if you'd potentially like us to get on any guests in the future Mm. and who you would like us to interview as well like Mm. who do you think would be appropriate to get on for this podcast channel yeah you know what I wish uh, podcasts had, especially Apple and Spotify, is they had like a comment section. Yeah. That would be because like we ask these questions and people have to go, oh, I got to go into Instagram and then I got to message them. Mm-hmm. Like I'm sure a lot of people would actually 
uh, well, more people would reply if if that was the case, but yeah. unfortunately, it's not. That it's only a matter be. of time, I think. Yeah, that would be really neat for yeah. sure. But anyway, guys, that is our plan for now. But what we'll finish on is one thing that we learned this week. I'll let you go first. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I learned this thing on a podcast. You know that we love the Dr. Carl podcast on Triple J and Science with Dr. Carl. Science with Dr. Carl. And Jack, have you heard people pose the question of, would you get more wet if you were to walk in the rain yes, or I, run I've in the rain? Yes, I've seen on Mythbusters. <laughs> oh, so they did it on Mythbusters. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, this guy posed this question to Dr. Carl, and I've always thought about this too. And like, Apparently it's, I mean, I would say that it's, you'd get less wet if you walk. Really? Yes, because if you're running into the rain... That would only make See, sense. See, that- that's the theory. Someone's like, people are like, sure, you're moving faster, but you're like running into the raindrops. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I guess they did this on Mythbusters or probably in some other sort of study. But it does turn out that you will get less wet if you run through the rain because mm. obviously you are exposing yourself to less time in the wet however the wet environment (laughs) but your risk of getting injured (laughs) and slipping and falling and hurting yourself significantly increases if you run through the rain Mm. compared to walk so a bit of a trade-off there guys yeah would you rather have a i would walk probably wet sweater or broken arm or you could just choose in between instead of walking you you could power walk bruh just responsibly jog Mm. <laughs> or just pack an umbrella yes yes <laughs> anyway anyway jack what do you learn i learned how to create a gif mm. and i did that on canva and <laughs> this is related to a post that we're posting tonight for tbd it's uh our first proper reel over on tbd mm-hmm. we've done one before so i said first proper reel oh what that was improper yeah, it just wasn't, it was just like throwing a few things together. This one, like, it's, um... This one has gifts, bruh. This one has gifts. It's legit. Gifts. <laughs> has a scene from a movie, Gladiator. So if that doesn't spike your interest, it's about supplements too. Bruh, what's, what's not to love? Gif, Gladiator, Jaquan, is that how you pronounce it? You wouldn't know, but Jaquan <laughs> Phoenix or whatever his name is. Looks like you don't know either. Well, I know is I know how to spell it, just not how to say it. The the actor of the Joker. Okay. That movie you didn't like. Yeah, that wasn't very good. It's like just get to the point, man. Yeah. So anyway, that reel's coming up on TBD tonight. So by the time you listen to this, that'll be out. Please, if you uh, if you like reels and you like supplements and Gladiator, then uh, feel free to check it out. Excellent. Well. But I'd learn how to do uh, make a GIF on Canva. So. Was it difficult? Um. It the hardest thing about GIFs is like is centering it. So like if, cause a gift just runs through the image quickly. So mm. like it runs through all three images. So you can imagine if you don't center it, then like one gif is going to, one photo is going to be off to the left and then off to the right. And then it will look really weird. <laughs> yeah. So, Tara's going to just be hopping all around. Yeah, the exactly. That's what you don't want. So <laughs> the hardest part is making all the images the same size and centering it. But mm-hmm. yeah, then you just have to combine them all. Yeah. But, yeah. You, you made it, you got it done. Yes, I, I just got to write that caption. Yep. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed this, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag TBD. If you're feeling kind, please feel free to leave us a five-star review on the iTunes podcast app or wherever you're listening and potentially write us a review too. And we'll catch you for our next episode.